Hello, everyone, and welcome back to your favorite podcast, Operation History, a podcast where history is more than what you remember. Happy New Year, everyone. We have missed you, and we are all glad that you are tuned in to us today. Today's episode is a special episode because we have a very special guest with us. She is an amazing, deep person and encourages drinking coffee, which we all drink plenty of coffee on this podcast. She is the one, the only, Alicia from Civics and Coffee. Yay. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Along with Alicia today, we have Lauren. Hi. Dave. How's it going, everybody? Derek. Hello. And myself, Maria, for those of you who don't know my voice. So the table is full today. So with that, let's begin. Today's topic, we are going to be diving into the Brown versus the Board of Education. So I will open it up to the floor now for whoever wants to dive in and take the mic away from me. Please do. So would one of our esteemed historians here like to uh, <laughs> at least just tell the, the overall tale of Brown v. Board? Yes. No, I'll do it. Yeah, please do. Go okay, ahead. so we are discussing Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka. Um, essentially, what was happening here, this is 1951, Southern United States. And what was going on is segregation. We are in the height of Jim Crow and segregation in general, where we are as a country allowing schools, buses, any kind of establishments to separate white and black patrons specifically because of their race. What happens in Brown v. Board, it's a little bit more, we'll get into a little bit more of the specifics, but what happens is a father, Oliver Brown, sues the Board of Education of Topeka because his daughter, daughter wow, that was a Boston accent. <laughs> um, his daughter, Linda, is denied entrance to an all-white elementary school. She basically had to walk to the Black school, which would bring her by multiple white schools that she couldn't go to because she was a Black child. And this case, where separate is not equal, is that it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court to really talk about the legitimacy of segregated education. And do we want to um, kind of set the stage of like what the separate but equal kind of legal precedent was, right? Because that came through Plessy v. Ferguson, which was a court decision in 1896, which kind of set that groundwork of allowing this separate but equal type of facilities. Um, and I think one of the things I found in my research was that the separation of the races wasn't immediate upon the implementation of Plessy, right? That took some time. Um, but like Georgia in 1905 passed a public park law prohibiting Black Americans from uh, going into those parks, right? Now that's a white area. Um, and then by the 20s and the 30s, this idea of segregation as we know it really starts to become more concrete. And that's where the uh, NAACP gets involved and says, okay, let's let's kind of hammer away at this and kind of led to this culmination, which was that that Brown v. Board of Education decision. Right, because what Plessy versus Ferguson did, which like you said, it, it establishes the it establishes the legal precedent saying that this is okay, which like you said, through series of events allowing for segregated spaces you end up through a culmination of events. Brown versus the Board of Education is not just one case. It's a series of court Supreme Court cases that the Supreme Court kind of blanketed with the name Brown v. Board. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a series of five cases that all kind of hit on different aspects of it, right? There was like Briggs v. Elliott, Bowling v. Sharp, Bilton v. Gebhardt, Davis versus the County School Board of Prince Edward County, and then of course, Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. So um, they basically wrapped all of those court cases into one in order to really make the case that 
you know, separate in and of itself was unequal, which I thought was a very interesting um, and dynamic kind of way to, to argue their case, right? Like they, they were done saying separate, but equal, they were going to go and say, look, by separating everybody, you are making everything unequal, um, which was a, a switch in their approach from before. I think before they were really starting to, uh, the NAACP was really focused on kind of proving a point that the facilities that they were, that were available to black Americans were not equal. So they were first trying to get the, those institutions on an equal footing. And then they kind of switched gears and said, you know what? No, everything by separating everybody, it's unequal, which I thought was pretty interesting. Right. Yeah. Cause this is not the first well, this is not the first case with this kind of topic, I guess, like trying to get into a white only school as a black individual and being denied because of race. But there was something with Plessy v. Ferguson called the Equal Protection Clause, basically saying you have to, if you're justifying separate, you know, separating the races, you have to have an adequate equal alternative for black individuals and all the way back to like the 30s they were having black applicants rejected from say law school and other universities and they were winning because there was no black equivalent Gaines v missouri um in 1938 this man's denied from the missouri school of law because of race and they basically were like yeah well we don't have a black law school so you can either go somewhere else we'll pay for you to go to another state or you can just wait till we build one and they it went all the way up to supreme court and they said you can't do that <laughs> wasn't right. wasn't there also I, I'm, I'm gonna butcher this name and i apologize somebody please correct me mclaurin mclaurin versus oklahoma state for yep. higher education same thing yeah same thing whereas you know this African-American individual, he wanted a PhD in education and Oklahoma State denied him, I'm sorry, not Oklahoma State, Oklahoma University denied him entrance solely because of his race. And he went to the Supreme Court. It was ruled unanimous uh, nine to zero, which is really interesting. He was able to go, but he had to sit in segregated rows mm -hmm. like he had to have his own row in the classroom that was designated for african-americans his own table at the library his own um yeah he could sit with his yeah, white he peers could, like so, so even within this integrated system there's still a separation right and so he had to go back because he's it was argued that was negatively affecting his education which of course it would be um absolutely yeah. and yeah they agree they said yeah you can't do that I found it was like maybe half a dozen court cases like that. I'm sure there's more, but I saw half a dozen. Yeah, and I think initially the NAACP, the reason why they decided to focus on secondary education or graduate schools was because of the fact that it was easier to prove that there was not access to Black Americans, right? So the Missouri case, if I remember correctly, the whole concept behind that was, well, he can't be a Missouri lawyer if he can't study Missouri law. So you can go ahead and give him his out-of-state tuition and, and pay for him to go to Arkansas to go to law school for a Black, black law school. But he still, you're still preventing him from being able to be a Missouri lawyer. How is he supposed to be a Missouri lawyer? You're, you're denying him that equal access. Um, so I think that's was kind of pretty brilliant in on their on their part on NAACP's part to say it's much easier to prove in a graduate situation that you know you can't do this um you can't it's you're you're denying equal access to to these educations um and then they switched it a little bit in the 50s to just say okay we're not worried so much about equal we're just saying now separate is what's actually the the equality or inequality factor Right. And if you're going to bring up the NAACP, then you should bring up Thurgood Marshall, which was Marshall part of that case or no? Because I know he was the I know he was one of the chief lawyers for the NAACP. But was he part of that case that you were just talking about, Alicia, or no? Because I know he was part of Brown v. Board. I don't. 
I, I can't remember in my research if I saw that he was part of that case specifically, but Lauren, you, you look like you had something. Um, I'm sorry, which case were you talking about again? Just say the name. Missouri, the Missouri law school case. Oh, okay. I remember. That's Boy, what yeah. I thought, but I'm unsure. Um, but he was part of one very similar Murray v. Maryland. Um, applicants rejected from University of Maryland Law School based on race. Um, and he was, yeah, and he was arguing because there's no black equivalent, um, like black law school, you can't have separate, like it's not separate or, well, it's separate, but it's not equal. But yeah, I don't know, but I know he was involved in others. Well, I know Marshall was part of the defense fund, which was the main, the major department in charge of litigating all these cases in front of the Supreme Court, in front of state courts and all that. So I know he had a very heavy hand in, in arguing for those cases and then appointing the attorneys or training the, the attorneys from those areas to pick up those litigation cases too. So he played, even if he wasn't directly involved in those cases, he played a heavy hand if it's um, defense fund court cases. But not only that, the other part, which was interesting from the research I did, which primarily um, comes from Brown v. Board of Education, a civil rights milestone in its trouble legacy, pivotal moments in U.S. history by James C. Patterson, was they not only started going off of, we can physically see it, but also the psychological points as well, which brings up a lot of contention within the Supreme Court and the African-American communities, but they also started targeting uh, also the pay per pupil. If you're spending more money on white students over African-American students, that's there's no equality there because either drop the rate that you're spending on white students to give it to African-American students or just raise up the African-American, how much you're spending on them as well uh, to make it actually equal, including um, the services that are provided from the city. So that was another key part of the argument as well. Yeah. And they looked into that. Right. And they found mm -hmm. that like in Alabama, for example, they spent thirty seven dollars for white students for seven dollars for a black student in South Carolina. It was fifty three dollars for a white student to five dollars for a black student. And so they brought all of this in and then they hired a uh, Nathan Margold. Uh, who wrote a report about the inequities found in the separate education facilities, right? Suggesting that targeting each school district one at a time to help build up this body of law so that by the time they got to Brown v. Board, they had all of these court cases that they could rely on to say, hey, all of this precedent has been done. Here you go, SCOTUS. Do what you need to do. Let's let's overturn, let's overturn Plessy. <laughs> and I will say, though, in my personal opinion, I don't think that Brown v. Board could have even started without the uh, passing of former Chief Justice Fred Vinson, because he was very much against this. He was like, oh, hey, 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 we need to slow it down. We need to look at all the facts here before we can get into it. And a lot of the other justices kind of followed in suit of, mm -hmm. hey, you know, this is a t difficult topic. We need to address this very slowly. You know, then he had a nice little, uh, nice little heart attack, died, and was replaced by Earl Warren, the uh, former governor of California, appointed by Dwight D. Eisenhower. And Warren was extremely against segregation, so he was definitely trying to push all the other justices, which, consequently enough, caused one of the other very pro-segregation justices he also surprisingly also had a heart attack that same year. You know, I'm just saying maybe it's a stressful job being in the Supreme Court. I don't know. Mm, like there, there might be a correlation know. there. I doubt um, it. What needs to happen will in, happen. <laughs> while he was in recovery from that, Warren had actually visited him multiple times, still discussing the case, trying to convince him, hey, maybe <laughs> segregation's wrong and we can change your mind on this. And actually, uh, Robert H. Jackson uh, did flip by the end, and that's what gave the unanimous vote by the end of uh, Brown v. Board. Well, right. and Earl, Earl Warren being added to the Supreme Court is actually kind of an interesting tale, because um, looking into it, right, Earl Warren, while maybe in 1952, 53, was more ready to, uh, you know, be against segregation, 
he had a very, very racist past, right? Like he testified in support of interning Japanese Americans. He, you know, it was by no means a kind of a foregone conclusion that he was going to be like, yes, let's end segregation. So I thought that was an interesting turn of events. And yes, I agree with you. I don't think Warren was a much better you know, political player, much better manager of all of these huge egos, which I'm sorry, if you're on the Supreme Court, you have an ego. And he was much better able to corral these, you know, dissenting voices into kind of coming under one umbrella and saying, okay, like, we need to come to a consensus here. And um, I'm actually kind of surprised that he was so successful in, in securing both the most liberal part of the bench and the most a conservative part of the bench. Well, I mean, you, you got to consider that Warren was a politician above all. So being able to flip sides to whatever is perfect at that time and whatever is accepted more, he could see the turning of the tide going in the favor of desegregation. So that's what he hoisted his sail to. I'm sure if the opposite was true, he would have been very, very pro-segregation because that's that's what good a good politician does. They they vote for their base, you know. You're so cynical. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say you're right. Hope that he would see that this is the right thing to do, but unfortunately, I've studied enough to know that sometimes cynicism wins the day. Yeah. Well, and their decision wasn't, you know, well liked in the South because of the fact that they didn't do case law, right? That he, that the decision was, they used things like the sociological tests of the dolls of, you know, where it shows basically as you're separating, you're automatically assuming that you're unequal. Um, so I know that the decision really upset people. I, yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised to see somebody of that history come in and, you know, for whatever reason, whether he felt bad about what he did to Japanese Americans, whether he had a pulse on the country and said, here we go, this is going to be politically expedient. Um, although, you know, Supreme Court, you're on there for life. So who knows? But yeah, I thought that was an interesting turn of events. I, I think it was more of a redemption thing for him. Like, hey, you know, this is my my time to make right for all the things I've said in the past, you know, and to really, if I can at least do this good, this might repay some of the debt I owe to the communities I've heard in the past. But not only that, I think bringing the conservative justices onto his side was more along of, of keeping country unity. Because if the dissension, then the South could use that dissension as a way of saying, yes, we, the Supreme Court is not unanimous in this. That means we can reject this as much as we can. But by having a unanimous decision, it leaves out that argument, like we can defy this. It's all right, they agree we we need to figure out a way until, you know, until it doesn't, which is the states doing what they can to use violence against these communities to delay having desegregation in their schools. Well, and I think that's where, you know, his politicism is his political skills comes in, right? He was able to wrangle that. He knew, he knew very much like whatever decision that we have to do, it's got to be unanimous. Otherwise the States are going to pick it apart. The South is going to say, you know, SCOTUS isn't, you know, unanimous. Neither do we, you know, they're, they're divided and so are we. So we're going to stay with the, the, the minority opinion or the majority opinion or whatever it is. There's one very influential way that he did convince the conservative justices, though. Mm -hmm. It's by the wording of how it would be enacted. Yeah. It wasn't immediately effective, you know, 1956, this happens. Right. It was all deliberate speed. That which is means all nothing. said about a time Which table. means nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's so. what causes majority of the problems following this right. is that exactly. deliberate speed. But that unanimous... That unanimous ruling, getting back to how important that is, like, I, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I apologize. I don't know if it was Dave or Alicia who said it, but that is so key and critical because of all the dissension that had been going on in the South, kind of since like the creation, the South, the creation of the United States. The South has always been divided and had their own agenda and wanted to push back and not shitting on the South, but... <laughs> But like that, that unanimous ruling is so critical because it's, it's that united front that shows this is not arguable. This is not, this is not something that's up for a debate anymore. 
yeah. how it's going to go about being implemented, like we just said, that's a different story. Well, I think, you know, as much as Brown was a, you know, a monumentous decision, uh, you know, I think we we've kind of hinted at the fact that the school system is still segregated today, uh, if not more so than it was prior to Brown. Um, and so, but I think the one of the important takeaways from that decision was it was the first time, right, that the United States government said racism is not okay. Separation of the races is not okay. You know, they had unfortunately had a huge body of law uh, prior to that, that kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, said, hey, it's okay, we can separate everybody. But Brown was the first time that they basically came out and said, absolutely not. I liked the, you know, the the decision from the court where they were saying, we conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Therefore, we hold that the plaintiffs and others similarly situated for whom the actions have been brought here are by reason of the segregation complained of deprived of the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th amendment. I'm like, mic drop, mic drop. I mean, <laughs> obviously, obviously it didn't go out the way that we wanted it to, but. <laughs> no, I find it that, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into the, um, you know, the aftermath of that decision, but what I find interesting is private schools technically could segregate up until 1976 and that's when a uh decision was made saying like you can't do that like you can't like you can't do that well and to a certain extent right like that's in a lot of the research that i was doing for this case they were talking about kind of um de facto uh segregation and racism and and kind Mm -hmm. of uh in law and i can't remember which it's a it's a roman or it's a latin term and i don't know what it is de facto De facto, and then there's another one for the jury. The act- Thank you, the jury. Gotcha. That's the that's the legal one. So, you know, I feel like charter schools right now. You pay typically for charter schools, or there's very specific guidelines to get into a charter school. So it's kind of like de facto segregation because they're not going to set up a charter school in a high minority neighborhood or they're going to charge. And so a lot of minorities, because they don't have that generational wealth built up, they can't afford to send their kids to a a charter school or a private school. So that's one of the kind of the unfortunate side effects of this Brown v. Board of Education decision. Because I think if I remember correctly, the whole idea of private schools and charter schools and, you know, uh, parents' choice really started in this segment, right? As soon as the Brown decision came up, they were like, oh, well, fine. Public schools, you do you. We're going to have this little private school and we can do whatever the heck we want. Okay, thanks, bye. (laughs) Right, it basically comes out of, not inherently, but in some cases out of racist parents. I mean, even in already desegregated school, like up in Boston, they were doing mass busing. They're saying, okay, you have to go into the inner city or you have to come out to the suburbs um, to kind of force more integration. Because even today, Boston remains like one of the most de facto segregated cities just because it wasn't out of law that they were all separated. It's just like Southie has the Irish people and then like North End has the Italian people and then other well, even, even beyond nationalities, it comes down to economics. There are some, like even today when we were talking about how school systems are still segregated, I wouldn't say so much they're segregated by race. They're segregated by economic income because you still Very have true. certain communities of schools that are underfunded. And you could say certain demographics, you know, still attend those schools, but now it's a different game. Well, I think it plays into things like redlining too, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Part of of the reason why there's that socioeconomic kind of shift is because of all of this other institutional organized racism to prevent minorities and disproportionately black Americans from the American dream, from home ownership and Mm -hmm. from moving into affluent neighborhoods. Absolutely. The Fair Housing Act, it's all a big circle. But overall, 
schools in affluent districts are nicer. They have more resources. They have more utilities for students where, like you're saying, schools in underdeveloped, underfunded communities, they have they don't have resources. They're ho- they have holes in the wall. Their infrastructure isn't there. And like like Alicia said, it's organized racism. It's not it's right. not segregation anymore. We're not saying only people of certain color and creed can enter the school. No. It's it's an economic. It's more of a blanket racism because now it doesn't matter who you are. Where we're judging you by your economic income. Right. You could be purple. And if you don't make enough socioeconomic status, you are not entitled to this level of education. So I see, I get the whole, I see what you mean by private, you know, because definitely, especially in urban areas, private schools or um, charter schools definitely do have some sort of leverage to monitor who they're letting in and out. The school I work at, which I'm not going to mention where, uh, we have testing, right? but we don't, we only do academic testing. So there's no social, economic, anything included in that conversation. I have students who have a lot and I have students who have very little, but they all, they're all there for education, which is the big part of Brown v. Board is that it should not matter what your color is. It shouldn't matter any of that. So, which again, social economic does play in a factor nowadays due to de facto segregation, redlining in the way that districts are set up. Um, but I, I think there's been at least the district I work in um, has made active attempts to try to curtail sort of that mentality. I also work in a very urban school, so I have a mixed bag of everyone. Um, so it may not be the best way of determining that, but I work at one of the best schools test score wise in, in the state. I have kids from all sorts of backgrounds. So again, you know, education definitely when it comes to social and economic stuff does not, it should not play a factor because kids, if they want it, they want it and they can, and they can prove it, you know, despite what obstacles are in their way. And I think that's the other key part of Brown v. Board is it shows that, you know, it should not matter. Can they do it? That's all it should matter. You know? Well, I'm going to argue with you just a little bit. I like that (laughs) (laughs) only because it's fabulous that you have students from various socioeconomic backgrounds. However, I would argue that, that the requirement to test, right. And even though it's just on academic knowledge or academic, you know, uh, expertise is inherently in and of itself kind of geared towards people who have had a rich, robust educational experience and while, yes, there are some students from poor socioeconomic backgrounds that may be able to kind of jump over that hurdle, a lot of them, right, are going to get weeded out because they don't have the parent that can help them study for the test or they don't have the parent that can help them get into some sort of prep school to, to improve their test scores, right? And so by, by nature of how that test is and the experience of the student, right? They aren't going to have that same opportunity. So that's why I think when people kind of criticize charter schools or private schools and the testing requirements, that's kind of what they're pointing to, right? It's like not not all educational experiences are built the same. And that's because of things like redlining and de facto segregation. And, you know, um, I don't know how it is back in your state, but in my state, schools are funded by property taxes. So if you are in a heavily minority neighborhood that does not have a lot of homes to for which to draw the property values and property taxes from to put into your schools, you're already at a disadvantage, right? It, you're going to get much more funding for your school if your district is in a you know predominantly residential area versus a predominant urban city apartment complex area. Just food for thought. I think our state is that way. Isn't our, aren't our schools funded it, by property taxes? They are. Yeah. And the yeah. district, the district that I work in has, I think, the highest school budget in the entire state. It's like six hundred million dollars or something along those lines. It's it's huge. And it comes all from property taxes. And there are schools where there are good middle schools where some of these kids come from. There's also kids that come from really bad schools too. 
I know I work with a couple of colleagues who've worked in the middle schools. They've worked in the best middle schools and the worst ones. And we get students from all, all walks of life, the best, you know, the best things with the best home lives and some with the worst home lives ever. We, when we look at the scores, we don't really factor all that into play. And there are some students who, even once they get in, you know, don't really act like they want to be there. So there's there, the kid. So for some of the kids, the parents, no matter what their background is, really push for them to get into that school because that's the only chance they may have of getting into college. Because my school used to be primarily and still is to an extent a college prep school that the public had access to. Um, and while we still have that mentality, the kids coming to us nowadays come from all walks of life and some do have college on the brain. And I've worked with students who have no care for college whatsoever. They're just there because their parents force them to be there, which is fine. Education nowadays, at least from my experience, you know, and again, I've ve- I work in a very unique district, so this is not the same everywhere, but it's very different where I have seen some schools, the school I went to when I was a kid in high school, predominantly Caucasian. And that was how the neighborhood was kind of set up from one way or another. We had also a lot of older families there too. So, you know, it always changes where if you go either by law or by not law. Which I think a lot of what we're talking about are some of the bigger conversations surrounding education, but let's, let's circle back. Well, a very easy way to talk about the injustices in school systems is to go to Little Rock. Oh, yeah. Dave yeah. can tell us all about the Little Rock incident, right, Dave? Yeah, the Little Rock 5. Yeah, I thought it was Little Rock 4. <laughs> Little Rock 1. <laughs> so, because now that we said all this, now I have to, I give yeah. the, con- now I have to give the you, context now. You, you can give the quick context. So, when I was in college... I won't say, I will say it was an education class. I won't say what sort of education class it is because I had an older gentleman as a professor and um, I was in my education class and in the book, you know, it talks about different educational events or different policy points that really redefined education. So it talks about Brown v. Board and it also talks about the Little Rock Nine. Now the Little Rock Nine I'm going to turn all that over to you. If you check out Alicia's podcast, Citizen Coffee, she has a two-part episode on it. So I encourage you to go listen to it. The Reader's Digest of What Happened With Me. This is, again, college level. I had a professor, college book. In the book, they had the Little Rock Five, not Little Rock Nine, but it had in there the Little Rock Five, and it had um, some other historical inaccuracies. I told the professor that the book was wrong. And he looked at me and said, I've been using this book for X amount of years and not one student has come up to me and said that this book is historically wrong. I don't think you're right. And he said to my face, okay. So I took out my phone and I looked it up on history.com, very basic. And it has all the right information. I show my, my mate next to me, my teacher during break looks at me and says, listen, if you can prove that this book is wrong, I will give you extra credit. You can't use Wikipedia because Wikipedia is not a historical, is not a historical source and it's not always factual. How about so the that, like 15 memoirs written by the actual members of the Little Rock? Just a general Google search. So he didn't believe me. So I said, okay, bet. I didn't say bet. I said, all right, you're on. So I was also meeting my advisor that very same day. And I explained everything that happened. He looked at me, his mouth dropped. He printed out an article because they had a play about the Little Rock Nine. So he gave me it, including the backstory. I had other professors giving me all this information. And I typed up like two and a half pages about the event, what actually happened. And I stapled all the sources and I slammed it on his desk. Um, You are Martin Luther. And... Later on, I, he read it and he's like, I see I was wrong. You're right. I'll give you extra credit. And I looked at him like, you can't use this section of the book. Like, it's not right. If, and I found other historical inaccuracies in there too. I'm like, this book does not, is not accurate. You can't use this. He's like, it's the only book I got and I have to use it. And it's like, wait. You, you are a college professor. What? Who picks your own books and that's the best comeback you have. 
I still have the book. It's an older edition now, but I still have it. I still have all my markings because I will never, ever get rid of that book, no matter how much I despise it. But it's important to keep talking about education, especially educational policies in the past, because one, where we're here, but two, you have to remind people. I mean, obviously, this guy's older than me, and he did not know that. Now, I'm not saying everyone that's older than me is ignorant. That's not what I'm saying. Not, not what I'm saying at all. But it's important to keep talking about these things because occasionally you do get problems like this. And we have to make sure that one, the legacy lives on. We talk about the causes and effects so that way we can become a better society. I'm my, my jaw's on the floor. I mean, like what, how, what I, okay. Well, anyway, circling it back to the Brown v. Board of Education decision, the, the story of Little Rock actually is very much a, a result of the Brown v. Board of Education because the original court decision in Brown didn't give a, a timeline for implementation. And then they had what they call Brown v. Board 2, right, which said all deliberate speed, which is what you said earlier. But, you know, I think what a lot of states that did not want to integrate chose to do with that decision is, oh, well, we're going to do committees and we're going to think about it. And, you know, my all deliberate speed is about 45,000 years from now. So thanks. <laughs> and Little Rock, I think, is one of those first test cases where they say, no, we're going to force this all deliberate speed now. You need to start integration now. Um, and I think there's even a state, I want to say it was Georgia, but I could be wrong. There was a district, several districts in the South where they just would rather shut down the school district than to allow students to be integrated. And that school district was closed for like a number of years. Um, in Little Rock, same kind of situation happened, right? They selected 10 students, as I learned, uh, to try to integrate the Little Rock High School. And they, you know, the governor said, yeah, no, it's not safe. We're going to go ahead and shut it, shut down the, the school. So it's, it's amazing that even with this Supreme Court decision that says this is not okay, this is not allowable, you need to integrate that several school districts throughout the country, it wasn't just the South, although it was a predominantly heavier issue in the South, uh, failed to just follow the court's ruling and actually advocate for, for integration. And if I remember correctly, I was reading in, uh, in a few sources that basically the court said after Brown v. Brown 2, they basically were like, okay, we said what we're going to say, we're not going to get involved. And it took them about 10 years or 12 years before they started handing down decisions. I think the first one was in 1968, where they said, yeah, no, you've had 12 years. Like, you need to go ahead and do this. Like, let's, let's, let's move on. Let's actually integrate. Stop dragging your feet. To, to piggyback off that, you know, the whole deliberate speed states were seeing an uptick in crime because people were not sense, but people way were overreacting and thought that their way was the best way. And instead of peacefully acting like adults, discussing it in public forum, they decide, well, let's burn the school down or we'll just attack the kids. So then the state said, oh, well, there's violence happening. So obviously we can't do this. So there's, there's an obstacle instead of the state cracking down on that crime, they just kind of encourage, they encouraged it even more and more, which kept everything stagnated. And that's when Supreme courts on the, on the state level and the federal level said, you can't use violence against the institution to justify putting off our decision. You have to one deal with the crime on your own, but two, you have to make sure this is, this is implemented. Right. And even with um, Little Rock, I mean, they were saying, well, just let us hang one of them and then we'll be fine. It's like that is it's actual children that you're talking about here. Like in what world is that an OK thing to how is that a bargaining chip? Just let us hang a ch actual child just trying to get an education so that an yeah, education that they're fine. entitled to. Right. That the goddamn the president of the United States has to send in troops so that they don't get hung. Like in what, I know that we're the generation of snowflakes and everything, but this is a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> Not a little bit, a lot of it. It's fucking d disgusting. It, it, it is ridiculous and it is disgusting. And it is, um, it's a blemish. It's a blemish on our 
country's history that that's the reaction to the situation like you said these are children like even if take that out of the equation they're people i don't care right. you know like they're they're, they're individuals people. they're right. human beings they're people they're children and this is this is the response that local communities gave the idea of children of mixed races sitting in the same classroom together it's it's disgusting but it Huh? It's not really surprising, though. No, 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 literally, hearing the stuff that you hear okay. and what we know, it's not surprising at all because it's right on par with everything that was going on surrounding the civil rights movement and the backlash that it unfortunately received within certain communities. It's very on it's, brand. It's overall with, disgusting. It's very on brand with American exceptionalism, which makes it even more just like this is like the american way and it still continues to be like it it's just not one thing it's another and it's just absolutely disgusting yes eric it's not even surprising though because considering 30 years before this literally in the white house they were showing a film of the birth of the kkk shown by president wilson this was right. the president of the United States going, the KKK is the best thing ever. So right. 30 years later, having someone say, yeah, we should hang a kid because they want to go to class. That's not surprising. There was a mental deficiency at these people that they thought that this entire group of people just should be downtrodden because they were different. And people still I, believe I that. Say it's, well, I was going to say, I don't think it's a mental deficiency. I think it's just, it's breeding to believe a certain ideology. When you have a thought process that is repeatedly drilled into somebody, they can't see the forest for the, the trees for the forest or however the saying goes. They can't see the difference in why this logic is wrong because they don't even know how to think a different way. Anything that challenges what they know to be fact, whether, whether it's fact or fiction, is doesn't matter it's, it's wrong that it it challenges their belief that they've had that their parents had that their grandparents mm -hmm. had everybody in my circle has had this exact sphere of influence and we have benefited from this thought process for whatever reason so it's right it's not wrong and all of that started even earlier than that Oh, yeah. Right at the end of the Civil War, mm -hmm. by the changing of the narrative by people like the Daughters of the Confederacy and all yeah. these other things yep. that shaped all of these young kids who later would be around, I don't know, they would probably be right around the age of all these Supreme Court justices and old people going, you can't desegregate our schools. But they learned all this stuff right, right after the Civil War when they were told that it was the War of Northern Aggression. It's Plessy versus it's so Ferguson. Weird. It's Jim Crow laws. They set that legal precedent. This is the Supreme Court of the United States saying this is okay. How can you, how, if, if the Supreme Court of the United States, the highest court in the country, says that it is okay to treat people differently based on the color of their skin and that they can, we can do this to them then everything is a domino effect after that. The radical thought that comes out of the South, it's not so radical in that light because it, they, have a, they have a green light. It's like Monopoly, <laughs> pass, go, collect 200. Like they're, they're given a free pass because who's going to stop them? Well, and I think too, one of the major issues in their educational system was that for the longest time, and I, I, I fear even to a certain extent today, the history textbooks that they were given didn't say that it the Civil War was caused by slavery, right? It was states' rights or northern aggression, as as Derek said. So, you know, you've got you hear this, right? They're why all of a sudden, why do you want to come to school with us? Because we have we have this huge history where we have taken care of you and you aren't able to take care of yourself and you're going to take our children down because you're not as smart as us because that's what they were taught. Right. And this, this idea of, of forced integration, right. Quote unquote, forced integration going to completely upset the social order because that's what they've been taught. And so when that was kind of, put on its face, they reacted violently, you know, they threatened to, 
you know, hang a couple of children. They actually bombed one of the houses of one of the little girls that w- she wasn't a little girl, but she was a, she was a teenager. So it's a little girl. Um, <laughs> little by our standards. Yes. Little by my standards. Yes, exactly. Um, this little girl who was just all she wanted to do was get an education and they decided that they would rather murder her entire family or try to murder her entire family than to allow her the decency of a public education of which she was legally bound to go to. There was compulsory laws on the books that says if you are a child under the age of however much years old, because I think it's changed over the years, you have to go to school. Otherwise, you face truancy you know, laws. So I don't, isn't I don't it, understand. It beyond that, isn't it one of the, the core found freedom from want, freedom from fear? Isn't it? It's it's beyond it. She's she's she is a human being. She's entitled mm-hmm. to an education. And it's just like you said, they their their reaction is no. And that whole we took care of you thing, again, going back to that very slaveholding paternalistic views of how one race viewed another that they were less than capable of taking care of themselves which is complete bullshit but you know it's 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 those views that went unchallenged and or not challenged enough i should say for so long that when it is turned on its head the the pushback is so swift and immediate that it escalates to that violent peak because like i said it not not to hijack the conversation but like i said it's that that thought process that this is this is how my dad did it and my grandfather and my grandfather before that and this is we have always kept these people in in their place quote unquote and now they need to be reminded of that mm-hmm. and the thing being a lot of them saw brown v board as the same exact fight they've been fighting for the past 70 years because it would be a issue of the south versus federalism Mm -hmm. federalism being any mandate coming down from the government saying you have to do x they saw it as hey this is the government trying to tell us we have to desegregate if we want to do it on our own that's one thing but when the government tells us ooh. But that's not what it was. It was the government trying to mandate it. So it actually happened because it would have never, in fact, happened if the federal government hadn't actually said it for the South, you know. Mm -hmm. Do we have anything else? We've kind of been tirading for the past hour or so. I have. I apologize. No, I mean, I can keep venting and ranting and raving about this for actual years, but... But one thing that struck me from the book that I was reading slash listening to was that the African-American community itself was also divided on how to look at this. Because integration would mean less African-American teachers, less African-American superintendents and principals, which they saw as authority figures. And that really upped the African-American Black pride movement that that started in the 20s. And that's further developing during this time. So even communities themselves are like, how do we deal with this? Because this seems good, but all the people that we've put in power now or have risen in society, now they're possibly going to lose their jobs over the white teacher who has more tenure. Other communities were like, ah, I this doesn't sit well with me either. And there were some who said, I want to keep my student in an all African-American school because they're getting the positive reinforcement there. Whereas they go here, they're going to face the hardships and be relegated and bullied or targeted more because there's fewer of them. Well, that's one of the repercussions of that decision, right? Uh, Because in the research that I was doing, they were even saying some of the black only schools were leaps and bounds ahead of some of the white only schools. And, you know, just, and even if it was the same, like what you said, Dave, the representation matters, right? Seeing a black teacher teaching you, you know, you have more investment in your education. That's somebody that looks like you. Um, and with the Brown v. Board and the closure of these segregated schools, 
there was nothing in the decision, unfortunately, that protected these teachers and allowed them to, you know, be integrated with their students. It was just like, oh, well, we're closing the school and goodbye. And then, you know, I don't think either the teachers union wasn't integrated or it wasn't as powerful back then. So they had no, you know, they had no remedy to that. And that's also, I think, played into the issues that we've seen over the years with education, right? Because students aren't seeing themselves represented, their stories aren't being told because it's a very whitewashed history and whitewashed authors that get taught in English class. And, um, you know, so students just become apathetic and, and not really interested in, in pursuing education because they're just not seeing themselves in it. Yeah, I actually saw something in the uh, the Journal of American History uh, that I found very interesting, um, stating that 10 years after Brown, according to data compiled by the U.S. Department of Education, almost 98% of Southern Black students still attended predominantly Black schools. Now, that's a mix of them refusing to actually do it, but I think it also has partly to do with them trying to hold on to that you know, structure that they've had for so long because they still wanted those authority figures in their life. They didn't want to let go of the principals and teachers they've had for so many years. There needed to be integration. No, no, there's no uh, arguing that. Integration definitely was required, but the letting go of all those people, I'm sure that many, many were uh, uh, compartmentalized, either put in different districts and then later fired or just outright closed down the schools because at that time there was now a protection of the students right to education, but there was not a protection of jobs. There was no protection of jobs because of race that, that didn't come for another couple decades, you know, down the line. Right. It had nothing to do with, they didn't have anything in place for all those people losing jobs. And that's just one of the consequences, I guess, of Brown v. Board that we don't really think about looking at, um, I was kind of telling you guys before we started recording that Maria pointed out I should stop talking because this is good things for recording. Um, that I was reading, actually, this actually comes up like what we were just talking about with Derek Bell, who Jr., who is a um, was a double NAACP lawyer during this time, and he says he believes that the implementation of Brown. Um, was a failure the way that they were doing it, like balancing the races within the school, busing people. Um, he just generally sees it as a failure in that, quote, white students on average attend schools where 8% of the student body is white. Speech was in 2005, um, like in preparations for the 50th anniversary of Brown v. Board. And I feel like this is, it's still, I mean, that wasn't that long ago, but like, it's still like my, my high school is predominantly white. I'm a white person. Um, I'm in this, a suburb. I was in a suburb of Boston. It's very white. So, you know, he talks a lot about how not just Black, but other minorities, other people of color are both being, you know, de facto racially separated just by economics, as we were talking about earlier, um, which also just impacts their education in general. I'll link to this article in our show notes it was actually a really good speech because he also goes into talking about you know we were kind of talking at the top of this podcast about how brown v board was different in saying that separate is not equal rather than earlier cases talking about how yeah we're not equal let's make our black schools equal or put some money into it and he actually argues that they should have just kept on doing that if the Supreme Court forced school districts to make the amount of money put into each student equal or the facilities equal, textbooks, whatever, and the schools would just start to desegregate on their own because now I have to support two exactly the same school districts within my own district, and that's a lot of money. So what if I just tear down a school and just shove all the kids together, which is interesting, I think. That is definitely an interesting concept. I think it's one of those what ifs in history, right? Because right. going down that path, I can see 
them saying, okay, well, we're going to put all our money towards private schools. And then we're only going right. to give public schools $5 per student. And so there, every student has $5. There you go. And then opening up all of these private schools where they had to test or they had to whatever, they could put whatever parameters they want, right? It's a private school. Right. So I, I wonder if that wouldn't have been the ramifications. It's unfortunately, we don't know what would have happened had Brown. Mm-hmm had a different answer right it's and it you know to me it was it was heartening to see the decision and for them to understand that racism is not okay it's and it's detrimental to the society I think I'm just still disheartened looking at history and just being like we haven't really learned a whole lot right I remember when Barack Obama was elected president, the, all of the headlines were like, we're in a post-racist society. And I'm like, um, no. no. (laughs) So yeah, I think, I think it's slow progress to know that it only took 60 ish years to override Plessy, but, um, you know, we still, had Supreme Court cases like Korematsu, which was about internments. And, you know, so I just, we have a long way to go, unfortunately. And how do you get there? Right. Like by being better than the generation that came before you, because just the fact that you even have to say that it only took 60 years, that shouldn't even be a statement. That shouldn't be a statement, but I I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But it, you know, again, like you said, We need to keep going forward, Mm -hmm. right? We need to be better. I think the next logical step would be in order to ensure equality in education would be adding either a national or state amendment to the constitution stating education in order to make things actually equal by a legal perspective. Because if it's in your constitution, that means generations down the road have to abide by that. And so do cities in the states. So even though, yes, a state may be busing, maybe giving grants or whatever to public schools, educationally is in the constitution, meaning that cities have to now make sure that everything lines up with the state. Now, give, give some more power to the federal government, but ensures that every student has access to an equal set of education, not just being in the building, but financing or materials as well. So you're talking a federal amendment to the constitution. Federal, if it fails federally, and I think states are the next ones to really do it. I think education in order, the next step of yeah. of integration and equality education is an amendment to constitution stating, hey, education is a right. You can't, that cannot be denied. And now it's in our legal document stating it's, it's required. I don't know. Lawyers are scrupulous mother efforts. And I just feel like There is a racist out there who will be like, and I'm going to hire this lawyer who will get this loophole and we're going to, we're going to not abide by this much like people did in board Brown v. board, right? Like here, the constitution of the United States says you cannot have separate facilities for black and white children. Everybody must be treated equally. And yet we have charter schools and private schools and still unequal funding because it's tied to things like property taxes, which is inherently going to be skewed towards those who are higher socioeconomic status, which in this country thus far predominantly is going to be white America. Yeah, but that's an interesting concept, a federal federal amendment. I feel like in this country, you couldn't get two thirds of the country to agree on anything. Um, The sky is blue. You can't even do that one. (laughs) The sky doesn't exist. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Fake news. You saw it on YouTube, right? (laughs) oh god oh no the conspiracy theory (laughs) i'll take my tinfoil hat off (laughs) (laughs) actually it's smog from the from the factories oh yes Uh, and the 5g towers that's right well i will i i mean i think i think you're i think you're right i think you know trying to get a unanimous consensus on that and how it would be implemented that's that's another nightmare that you know, it could go either way. And I'll throw lawyers a bone, you know, for every one bad one, there was a good one because look at Thurgood Marshall. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's a horse of every color and 
you know, I think that's where the mindset needs to change because even like you said, with something, if you had a federal mandate, it comes down to the want, like you said, there could be, you know, someone who hires somebody who has a hidden agenda based on their views. And that's where we need to be better than the generations that came before, because we have to understand why that's wrong and how going forward is the right thing to do. You can tell somebody that, but until they understand it and they believe it and they know it to be true, that's, that's the key difference. Yeah. That reminds me of like Dick Cheney's evolution, right? Like it took him having a daughter for him to be like, oh, they're people. Okay. Which I think is, is a natural aspect. Sorry. Should I not have gone there? No, it's for you're fine. You're fine. I love I love Derek's reaction. But like you said, they can't. Some people cannot empathize until right. they're brought to a point, and that again, that's another thing in and of itself. We don't have time for that conversation, but it's that aha moment that yeah. people need to have. But the only problem with the whole possibly amending constitution it comes down to the same exact fight they had with brown v board it's federalism versus you know states states rights rights. oh well you know it's the state's right to choose its own education and ideas of what education should be the government should not have anything there's nothing in the constitution before about it our founding fathers didn't say anything about it who cares common core that's all i have to say on the matter (laughs) Which is why if you know something to be true, you say it. If you need to be told to say it. Right. I mean, uh, if we could just fund our teachers, let's just start there. That would be- Again, this let's conversation has spiraled into 50 million <laughs> offshoots. There could, be, there could be a subsequent <laughs> series of stuff that we're talking about. Operation History tackles the big questions. <laughs> why, is, why are we the way that we are? We don't have time at Operation that. History. We just don't have time for that. Yeah, no. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Good talk. Yeah. Stop being racist. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. That's a good one. I I think we'll go out on a limb and say Operation History is against racism. We do not condone racism. We're going to be very controversial here. Yeah, it's a very (laughs) strong limb. It's a good hunch. It's a good lead. It's a strong limb. (laughs) All right. Okay. So, before we start our normal closing stuff we first would like to take the time to thank alicia for coming onto the pod and spending time with us i know things got we went way off track but we appreciate (laughs) you being here and hanging out with us for the time that you know we're all together before we do the full closure alicia is there anything that you want to plug is there anything that you're working on anything that you're going to be a guest on anytime soon um, let's see. I don't think I have any more guest spots coming up except for this one. So thank you so much for having me on and, uh, everybody just check out the podcast. If you like uh, history and the time it takes to drink a cup of coffee, I don't get into the beautiful long discussions that operation history does. Uh, I'm a solo operation, so I have to keep a tight, tight ship. So civics and coffee, wherever you get your podcast, you can also follow me on all the socials. You can find me at the website, www.civicsandcoffee.com. So if you haven't gotten hit, go check her out. She's awesome. She has a lot of great episodes in there. It's amazing. Go check out her two-parter on um, Little Rock because it ties into what we were talking about. Yes. Go tell her that you were sent from this episode. Mm. Yes, I'd love to see hear that. <laughs> Welcome to your Operation History initiation. I hope this experience has been less traumatizing. <laughs> <laughs> That's rude. <laughs> the truth this was amazing (laughs) thank you all so very much for tuning into our first episode of the year uh we appreciate all of our listeners all the supporters out there so if you get a chance please rate download and review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts if you did not know spotify you can now rate podcasts on spotify so go ahead if you listen to us on spotify go ahead and give us that five star star rating that you've been longing to do It's a small, but it's a simple way that you can help us here at the pod, get the word out and to get all your friends along with us. If you like to interact with us, there's a a lot of ways you can do that. First off, you can go to Twitter and at Operation Hist, O-P-E-R-A-T-I-O-N-H-I-S-T. 
we're very active. Thank you, Lauren, for running the, the uh, Twitter page. It's always appreciated. She also manages our webpage, our WordPress. So if you want to check out any show notes, download us, you can do that at WordPress as well. Or you could simply shoot us an email at operationhistorypodcast at gmail.com, O-P-E-R-A-T-I-O-N-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Um, or you can view us at the webpage at the WordPress, which is where we upload everything. So with that being said, thank you all for listening. And this is Operation History signing out. history has no association with any of the institutions or organizations mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any academic institutions, organizations, or companies that they currently work for or attend or that they have previously worked for or attended in the past. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for Operation History. say but in hey thank thanks Zoom. <laughs> you didn't swear at it new year's resolution swearing at zoom all right no it's just <laughs> i you know i'm restraining myself a little bit today okay that's all <laughs> oh i see you have to act appropriately because company's here <laughs> I, yes i can't at least we trained you well that you behave in front of guests <laughs> Listen, I'm saving the batshit craziness towards the end. Okay. Got it. Okay. Got it. I don't know. We'll see. It's, I'm drinking a summertime beverage at one o'clock at, and it's 40 degrees out. So I also haven't eaten anything today. So it's going to get really interesting about half an hour. It's going to be wild. Sorry, my friend Brittany just texted me, want to get Mexican later. I'm so excited. Yes, I do. Okay. Anyway. So, Moving on. Uh, anyways, so. Other than that, good fucking luck, everybody. <laughs> I do that. No, no. It's like when you strap it and the roller coaster just starts going up the hill really Bro. slowly. This <laughs> is like down. a zero gravity ride where you just stick to the outside, but there's a big hole in one side of it. So you're just like, oh shit, hope this works. <laughs> it's insanely accurate. <laughs> So let's open this up. <laughs> we can actually be, be out of here by about <coughs> three o'clock, you know. That would be nice. Three so a.m. Okay. Anything. I want okay. Wendy's bad guys. <laughs> Aren't you getting Chinese? <laughs> no, Mexican, Mexican bitch. Mexican. Oh, house oh, I might have to do a brain check. Just have like a buffet of it all. Just put yeah, it all right in should, front of yeah. you. And just, maybe just, she'll come to It's going to be the worst time on the toilet afterwards, but you know. <laughs> I hate being alive, and I hate that you just said that while we're recording. Oh, wait. Hold on. The cat's here before we... Oh, no, you're going to leave? Come say hello. <laughs> Bitch. Anyway, moving on. She'll be back. She told you. I'll be back. All right. Oh, so...